I don't know who needs to hear this, but we have just quietly released the first episode of our long-awaited audiobook adaption of Jane Austen's Persuasion. We've submitted it to all the usual streaming platforms, so go and search for it where you listen to podcasts to see it, to see it, to find it, to listen to it. I think that's the point. Podcasts, you don't use your eyes, you use your ears. Anyway, it's going to be available there soon, so you should go and find it um, and see if it's available yet. For more info about the podcast, visit our website, which is www.bnt.org.au. Chapter 39 It was the second week in May in which the three young ladies set out together from Gracechurch Street for Hertfordshire, and, as they drew near the appointed inn where Mr Bennet's carriage was to meet them, they quickly perceived, in token of the coachman's punctuality, both Kitty and Lydia looking out of a dining-room upstairs. These two girls had been above an hour in the place, happily employed in visiting an opposite milliner, watching the sentinel on guard, and dressing a salad and cucumber. After welcoming their sisters, they triumphantly displayed a table set out with such cold meats as an inn larder usually affords, with Kitty exclaiming, Is not this nice? Is not this an agreeable surprise? <laughs> and we meant to treat you all, but you must lend us the money, for we have spent hours at the shop there. Lydia added, then, showing her purchases... Oh, look here! I have bought this bonnet. I do not think it very pretty, but I thought I may as well buy it as not. I shall pull it to pieces as soon as I get home, and see if I can make it up any better. And, when her sisters abused it as ugly, she added with perfect unconcern... Oh, but there were two or three much uglier in the shop, and when I have bought some prettier coloured satin to trim it fresh... I think it will be very tolerable. Besides, it will not much signify what one wears this summer. After the regiment have left Meryton, they are going in a fortnight. Are they indeed? cried Elizabeth, with the greatest satisfaction. They are going to be encamped near Brighton, and I do so want Papa to take us there all for the summer. It would be such a delicious scheme, and I dare say would hardly cost anything at all. Mamma would like to go too, of all things... Only think, what a miserable summer else we shall have. Yes, that would be a delightful scheme indeed, and completely do for us all at once. Good heaven, Brighton and a whole campful of soldiers to us, who have been overset already by one poor regiment of militia and the monthly balls of Meryton. Elizabeth thought to herself. Now have we got some news for you. Such news indeed, said Lydia, as they sat down at a table. And what do you think? It is excellent news, capital news, and about a certain person we all like. Kitty could hardly contain her excitement. Jane and Elizabeth looked at each other, and the waiter was told he need not stay. Lydia laughed and said, Aye, that is just like your formality and discretion. You thought the waiter must not hear as if he cared. I dare say he often hears worse things than I am going to say. But he is an ugly fellow, and I'm glad he's gone. I never saw such a long chin in my life. Well, but now for our news. It is about D. Wickham. Too good for the waiter, is it not? There is no danger in Wickham marrying Mary King. 
there's for you. She has gone down to her uncle in Liverpool, gone to stay. Wickham is safe. And Mary King is safe. Safe from a connection imprudent as to fortune, added Elizabeth privately. She is a great fool for going away if she liked him, said Kitty. Jane expressed concern. But I hope there is no strong attachment on either side. I'm sure there is not on his, insisted Kitty. I will answer for it. He never cared three straws about her. And who could about such a nasty little freckled thing? Lydia lacked all reserve. Elizabeth was shocked to think that, however incapable of such coarseness of expression herself, the coarseness of the sentiment was little other than her own breast had harboured and fancied liberal. As soon as all had ate and the elder ones paid, the carriage was ordered, and after some contrivance, the whole party, with all their boxes, work-bags and parcels, and the unwelcome addition of Kitty's and Lydia's purchases, were seated in it. How nicely we are all crammed in. I'm glad I bought my bonnet, if it is only for the fun of having another bandbox. Well, now let us get quite comfortable and snug and talk and laugh all the way home. And in the first place, let us hear what has happened to you all since you went away. Oh, yes! Do tell us how I long to hear news of London, Jane. Have you seen any pleasant men? Have you had any flirting? I was in great hopes one of you would have had a husband before you came back. Jane will be quite an old maid soon, I declare. She is almost three and twenty. Lord, how I would be ashamed if I should not be married before three and twenty. My Aunt Phillips so wants you to get husbands, you can't think. She says Lizzie had better take in Mr. Collins, but I do not think there would be much fun in it. Lord, how I should like to be married before any of you. And then I would chaperone you all about the balls. <laughs> Dear me. We had such a good piece of fun the other day at Colonel Forster's. La, but we did. Kitty and me were to spend the day there, and Mrs. Forster promised to have a little dance in the evening. By the by, Mrs. Forster and me are such friends. And so she asked the two Harringtons to come. But Harriet was ill, and so Penn was forced to come by herself. And then, what do you think we did? We dressed up Chamberlain in women's clothes on purpose to pass for a lady. Only think what fun. Not a soul knew of it, but Colonel and Mrs. Forster and Kitty and me, except my aunt, who we were forced to borrow one of her gowns. And you cannot imagine how he looked. When Denny and Wickham and Pratt and two or three other men came in, they did not know him in the least. Lord, how I laughed, and so did Mrs. Forster. I thought I should have died from <laughs> laughing. <laughs> and that made the men suspect something. <laughs> and then... They soon found out what was the matter. With such kinds of histories of their parties and good jokes, did Lydia, assisted by Kitty's hints and additions, endeavour to amuse her companions all the way to Longbourn. Elizabeth listened as little as she could, but there was no escaping the frequent mention of Wickham's name. Their reception at home was most kind. Mrs. Bennet rejoiced to see Jane in undiminished beauty, and more than once during dinner did Mr. Bennet say voluntarily to Elizabeth, <clears throat> I'm glad you are come back, Lizzie. Their party in the dining room was large, for almost all the Lucases came to meet Maria and hear the news, and various were the subjects that occupied them. Hola! 
but I have so much to tell you. The, the, the grandeur of Lady Catherine's estate. We dined with her most often, and she treated us with much civility and, and, and condescension. Oh, if but you could have seen Rosings Park. Oh, how lucky is Charlotte to be so closely connected to such a lady. Lady Lucas was inquiring of Maria after the welfare and poultry of her eldest daughter. Mrs Bennet was doubly engaged, on one hand collecting an account of the present fashions from Jane, who sat some way below her, and on the other, retailing them all to the younger Lucases. And Lydia, in a voice rather louder than any other person's, was enumerating the various pleasures of the morning to anybody who would hear her. Oh, Mary, I wish you had gone with us. Indeed, we had such fun. As we went along, Kitty and I drew up the blinds and pretended that there was nobody in the coach. I should have gone so all the way if Kitty had not been sick. And when we got to George, I do think we behaved very handsomely. For we treated the other three to the nicest cold luncheon in the world. And if you would have gone, we would have treated you too. And then, when we came away, it was such fun. I thought we should never have gotten back into the coach. I was ready to die of laughter. And then we were so merry all the way home. We talked and laughed oh, so loud that anybody might have heard us ten miles off. To this, Mary gravely replied, Far be it from me, my dear sisters, to depreciate such pleasures. They would doubtless be congenial with the generality of female minds. But I confess they would have no charms for me. I should infinitely prefer a book. But of this answer, neither Lydia nor Kitty heard a word. Lydia especially seldom listened to anybody for more than half a minute and never attended to Mary at all. In the afternoon, Lydia was urgent with the rest of the girls to walk to Meryton and to see how everybody went on. But Elizabeth steadily opposed the scheme. It should not be said that the Miss Bennets could not be at home half a day before they were in pursuit of the officers. There was another reason, too, for her opposition. She was dreading seeing Mr Wickham again and was resolved to avoid it as long as possible. The comfort to her of the regiment's approaching removal was indeed beyond expression. In the fortnight they were to go, and once gone, she hoped there could be nothing more to plague her on his account. She had not been many hours at home before she found that the Brighton scheme, of which Lydia had given them a hint at the inn, was under frequent discussion between her parents. Elizabeth saw directly that her father had not the smallest intention of yielding, but his answers were at the same time so vague and equivocal that her mother, though often disheartened, had never yet despaired of succeeding at last. Chapter 40 Elizabeth's impatience to acquaint Jane with what had happened could no longer be overcome, and at length, resolving to suppress every particular in which her sister was concerned and preparing her to be very surprised, she related to her the next morning the chief of the scene between Mr Darcy and herself. Miss Bennet's astonishment was soon lessened by the strong sisterly partiality which made any admiration of Elizabeth appear perfectly natural and all surprise was shortly lost in other feelings. 
she was sorry that Mr. Darcy should have delivered his sentiments in a manner so little suited to recommend them, but still more was she grieved for the unhappiness which her sister's refusal must have given him. His being so sure of succeeding was wrong and certainly ought not to have appeared, but consider how much it must increase his disappointment. Indeed, I am heartily sorry for him, but... He has other feelings, which will probably soon drive away his regard for me. You do not blame me, however, for refusing him? Blame you? Oh, no. But you blame me for having spoken so warmly of Wickham? No. I do not know that you were wrong in saying what you did. But you will know it when I tell you what happened the very next day. She then spoke of the letter, repeating the whole of its contents as far as they concerned George Wickham. What a stroke was this for poor Jane, who would willingly have gone through the world without believing that so much wickedness existed in the whole race of mankind, as was here collected in one individual. Nor was Darcy's vindication, though grateful to her feelings, capable of consoling her for such discovery. Most earnestly did she labour to prove the probability of error and seek to clear the one without involving the other. This will not do. You will never be able to make both of them good for anything. Take your choice, but you must be satisfied with only one. There is but such a quantity of merit between them, just enough to make one good sort of man and of late it has been shifting about pretty much. For my part, I am inclined to believe it's all Darcy's. But you shall do as you choose. It was some time, however, before a smile could be extorted from Jane. I do not know when I have been more shocked. Wickham, so very bad. It is almost past belief. And poor Mr. Darcy, dear Lizzie, only consider what he must have suffered. Such a disappointment, and with the knowledge of your ill opinion, too. And having to relate such a thing of his sister, it is really too distressing. I am sure you must feel it so. Oh, no. My regret and compassion are all done away by seeing you so full of both. I know you will do him such ample justice that I am growing every moment more unconcerned and indifferent. Your profusion makes me saving, and if you lament over him much longer, my heart will be as light as a feather. Poor Wickham. There is such an expression of goodness in his countenance, such an openness and a gentleness of manner. There certainly was some great mismanagement in the education of those two young men. One has got all the goodness, and the other all the appearance of it. I never thought Mr Darcy so deficient in the appearance of it as you used to do. And yet... I meant to be uncommonly clever in taking so decided a dislike to him without any reason. <laughs> it is such a spur to one's genius, such a, an opening for wit, to have a dislike of that kind. One may be continually abusive, 
without saying anything just. <laughs> but one cannot always be laughing at a man with, without now and then stumbling on something witty. Lizzie, when you first read that letter, I am sure you could not treat the matter as you do now. Indeed, I could not. I was uncomfortable enough. I was very uncomfortable. I may say, unhappy. With no one to speak to about what I felt. No Jane to comfort me and say that I had not been so very weak and vain and nonsensical as I knew I had. <laughs> How I wanted you. How unfortunate that you should have used such very strong expressions in speaking of Wickham to Mr. Darcy. For now they do appear wholly undeserved. Certainly. Yes. But the misfortune of speaking with bitterness was the most natural consequence of the prejudices I had been encouraging. There is one point on which I want your advice. I want to be told whether I ought or ought not to make our acquaintances in general understand Wickham's character. Miss Bennet paused a little and then replied, Surely there can be no occasion for exposing him so dreadfully. What is your opinion? That it ought not to be attempted. Mr Darcy has not authorised me to make his communication public. On the contrary, every particular relative to his sister was meant to be kept as much as possible to myself. And if I endeavour to undeceive people as to the rest of his conduct, who will believe me? The general prejudice against Mr Darcy is so violent that it would be the death of half the good people in Meryton to attempt to place him in an amiable light. I am not equal to it. Wickham will soon be gone, and therefore it will not signify to anyone here what he is. Sometime hence it will be all found out, and then we may laugh at their stupidity in not knowing it before. At present, I will say nothing about it. You are quite right. To have his errors made public might ruin him forever. He is now, perhaps, sorry for what he has done and anxious to re-establish his character. We must not make him desperate. The tumult of Elizabeth's mind was allayed by this conversation. She had got rid of two of the secrets which had weighed on her for a fortnight, and was certain for a willing listener in Jane whenever she might wish to talk of either again. But there was still something lurking behind, of which prudence forbade the disclosure. She dared not relate the other half of Mr Darcy's letter, nor explain to her sister how sincerely she had been valued by her friend. Here was knowledge in which no one could partake, 
and she was sensible that nothing less than perfect understanding between the parties could justify her in throwing off this last encumbrance of mystery. And then, if that very improbable event should ever take place, I shall merely be able to tell what Bingley may tell in a much more agreeable manner himself. The liberty of communication cannot be mine till it has lost all its value. She was now, on being settled at home, at leisure to observe the real state of her sister's spirits. Jane was not happy. She still cherished a very tender affection for Bingley. Having never fancied herself in love before, her regard had all the warmth of first attachment, and, from her age and disposition, greater steadiness than most first attachments often boast, and so fervently did she value his remembrance and prefer him to every other man that all her good sense and all her attention to the feelings of her friends were requisite to check the indulgence of those regrets which must have been injurious to her own health and their tranquillity. Well, Izzy, what is your opinion now of this sad business of Jane's? For my part, I am determined never to speak of it again to anybody. I told my sister Philip so the other day. But I cannot find out that Jane saw anything of him in London. Oh, well, he is a very undeserving young man, and I do not suppose there's the least chance in the world of her ever getting him now. There is no talk of his coming to Netherfield again in the summer. And I have inquired of everybody, too, who is likely to know. I do not believe he will ever live at Netherfield anymore, Mama. Oh, well, it is just as he chooses. Nobody wants him to come. Though I shall always say he used my daughter extremely ill. And if I was her, I would not have put up with it. Well, my comfort is... I am sure Jane will die of a broken heart, and then he will be sorry for what he has done. But as Elizabeth could not receive comfort from any such expectation, she made no answer. Her mother continued soon afterwards. Well, Lizzie, and so the Collinses live very comfortable, do they? Well, 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 I only hope it will last. And what sort of table do they keep? Charlotte is an excellent manager, I dare say. If she is half as sharp as her mother, she is saving enough. There is nothing extravagant in their housekeeping, I dare say. No, nothing at all. A great deal of good management, depend upon it. Yes, yes, they will take care not to outrun their income. They will never be distressed for money. Well... <laughs> Much good may it do them. And so, I suppose they often talk of having Longbourn when your father is dead. They look upon it as quite their own, I dare say, whenever that happens. It was a subject which they could not mention before me. No, it would have been strange if they had. But I make no doubt they often talk of it between themselves. Well... If they can be easy with an estate that is not lawfully their own, so much the better. I should be ashamed of having one that was only entailed on me. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ballarat National Theatre's adaptation of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. You can support this little production by buying some merchandise, which will help our little not-for-profit theatre company during the pandemic. To do so, just search for Ballarat National Theatre Redbubble on Google and it should pop up. This production is directed by Liana Skews and direction of this episode was assisted by Olivia French. It was also narrated by Olivia French and prepared for production by Elizabeth Bradford, Olivia Franciusca, Marley Vanderbale and Liana Skews. This episode features the voices of as Elizabeth Bennett, Liz Hardiman as Mrs. Bennett, Chris Hiscock as Mr. Bennett, Liana Skews as Jane Bennett, Daisy Kate Kennington as Lydia Bennett, Amelia Pawsey as Kitty Bennett, Kiralee McCullough as Mary Bennett, and Alana Denham-Preston as Mariah Lucas. This podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wathaurong people. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wathaurong, Wurundjeri and Boonarong peoples. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respects to our traditional custodians and to their past, present and emerging leaders. And finally... What's pink and has wheels? A pig. I lied about the wheels. <laughs> <laughs>